In nature documentaries, we see that watering holes can be a dangerous place. Zebras, gazelles, and many other animals drink cautiously and keep an eye out for predators lurking below the surface. It's a place of sustenance, but can also be a place of death. Normally, such threats don't exist in modern-day places, like, say, a break room in an office. But in this rare case we are going to talk about, it did. A woman arrives at work Monday morning, ready to fill out and file insurance paperwork. First, she starts her morning with a drink of water. Although staying hydrated is usually a good thing, it was nothing less than an evil trap. Who did what to the water? Let's talk true crime. Welcome to Hell Now, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Last week's case reminded me of a case that I heard about years ago, probably a decade ago, but I always remembered it, so I decided to look it up. This is the case where I learned that only 60% of the population had a gene that allowed them to smell this particularly deadly substance. It's something we can't all smell. And I always remembered this. Let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Around the early to mid 1980s in Arizona, a man taught at a junior college and his name is Lewis Harry. And he met a woman in a bar named Sharon. I'm not going to say her last name. Sharon and Lewis, they hit it off and they began a romantic relationship. And according to Sharon, things moved quite quickly. Uh, This relationship, however, was not without problems. The first being that Lewis was married. Yep, he was married. He had told Sharon that he was getting divorced and when that was finalized, he would then like to marry her. I'm not exactly sure how long their relationship was or how long it lasted, uh, but he did ask her to marry him once his divorce was, was dealt with, was finalized, was over, and you know, according to Sharon, things did move rather quickly. So it wouldn't be surprising if he had, if I learned that he had proposed to her quite quickly on into their romantic relationship, it it seemed like it was moving at warped speeds. So the other problem, it was much more threatening. And that was that Sharon had a very angry, jealous ex-boyfriend. She said she dated him briefly and his name was Roy. Sharon recalls that when she was dating Roy, he would do horrible, horrific things to her like he would choke her and he would tell her that he would murder her if if she ever dated anybody else, ever dated other people. And Sharon also said that Roy would stalk her. So, okay, there is, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with when Roy found out about Sharon dating because that did not go over well. Roy, he seemed to be dangerously possessive and obsessed with Sharon. Even though their relationship was over, he he wouldn't let it go. And Sharon said he wasn't the type of guy who took no for an answer. So that is already 
terrifying. And Roy, he really did not like that Sharon had moved on. One night, Roy waited outside Sharon's apartment. And when Lewis left, because Lewis was spending time with Sharon at her apartment, Roy followed him home. And he found out where he lived. And I'm assuming he watched Lewis's home for a while because he contacted Sharon and he told her what he had discovered, what he had saw when he was watching Lewis's home, which is a whole other level of terrifying. Roy told Sharon that Lewis was not getting a divorce at all. In fact, he was still living with his wife and they were still very much together. Whether Sharon believed him or not, uh, I'm unsure. Roy's behavior was so concerning for both Lewis and Sharon uh, that Sharon ended up getting a restraining order out against Roy and Lewis had assisted her in this. He, he aided her in this. And it was after this restraining order was granted that Roy started sending letters to Lewis and his wife. Some sources say Lewis's wife was named Diane and some say a different name. Uh, I'm going to go with the name Diane. As I saw, that name was used in a Forensic Files episode about this case. Uh, so I'm going to go with with Diane. But other sources do say a different name. Um, not sure why that is. These letters that uh, Lewis and his wife were receiving from Roy, they were not nice. As you can imagine, they were just not nice at all. They were all varying degrees, varying flavors of uh, threats. Some expressed things like Roy's displeasure with the restraining order and with Harry's relationship with Sharon. That's why Roy was really mad. He obviously hated this restraining order, but but the thing he hated more was that Lewis and Sharon were in this romantic relationship. Roy hated that and he hated that Lewis was married and doing this. He didn't like that either. Eventually these letters, they got extremely threatening and these threats extended to uh, Lewis's wife, Diane. So we are going to come back to these letters later. Um, now we're going to talk about the water cooler and a 46-year-old mother of three named Julie Williams. Julie had recently started a new job in Tempe, Arizona at an insurance company called Transamerica Title. She started two months previous to this day and she seemed to really be enjoying her work according to her daughter. On a Monday morning in March of 1986, she went to the office and this is a small office. I mean, there were only a handful of employees. There was only four employees working there at this time. Um, she went into the break room around 9 a.m. to get a drink of water and, you know, probably say hello to her fellow co-workers. I can imagine this is a very typical thing for anyone to do. It's such an unassuming, common occurrence. And I mean, nobody would ever think twice about doing something like this. But it turned out this morning was like no other. As soon as Julie took a sip of water that she had poured out of the water cooler, she was disgusted and she told everyone something was wrong with the water and not to drink it. She said it burned her lips and tongue. Not a good sign. Not a good sign at all. And she had swallowed some of it. 
This made her co-workers curious, so they then tried the water. But once they felt the burning, they didn't swallow any of it. They put it to their lips, it started to burn, and they were like, whoa, something is really wrong with this water, and they didn't drink any of it. Why they didn't just take Julie's word for it, I will never know, but it's it's a good thing they spit it out. I mean, I remember working in kitchens and somebody would pull something out of a fridge and they'd be like, whoa, this smells really bad, this is off. And I, I would be like, oh, let me smell it. And then I would be like, oh yeah, that is really gross and that is off. <laughs> I don't know why we do these things, but we do. After taking a sip of this burning water, um, which again, Julie did swallow a bit of it, Julie went to the bathroom. So she obviously wasn't feeling well and she went to the bathroom and this all happened very quickly. Okay. There wasn't much time in between here, seconds probably that she tried it, said, oh, this is bad, went to the bathroom. A coworker went to check on her because they were like, whoa, where, where did, where did Julie go? Is she okay? They got worried. They go to check on her and they realized that Julie was unconscious in one of the bathroom stalls. Things were not looking good for Julie as her coworkers tried to get a response from her, but it was clear that something horrible was happening. There was something terribly wrong. So they called emergency services and the ambulance showed up very, very quickly. I heard about five minutes it got to the scene, but again, she Julie was unresponsive. They rushed Julie to the hospital, um, but, but she's in a coma and her daughters were notified as soon as they could have been notified and they're given this horrible news that something really bad had happened to their mother doctors thought that it was it was something like a health issue they were thinking it was a stroke but you know as we're gonna see this was no stroke this was something much 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 more sinister and and evil it was discovered that julie was not only in a coma but also brain dead this now meant her daughters had to make a heartbreaking decision of what to do Once doctors started thinking that this could be something more than a stroke, they wanted the water tested at the office that Julie worked at, thinking there was some deadly contamination. Police were involved, and what investigators found was nothing short of a vile and horrendous human act. This is where the smell of bitter almonds comes in. This is where only 60% of the, roughly about 60% of the population can smell this smell that smells like bitter almonds and it comes from something very specific. One of the investigators that went to the break room said as soon as he walked in, he could smell it. And the smell he described was bitter almonds. This was a very easy smell for him to detect, but like I said, some people can't. This isn't easy for everyone. In fact, Some people can't smell it at all. And the reason only 60% of the population can smell cyanide is because it's a genetic trait. You're either born with a gene that can smell it or you're not. And experts on working on this case will later say that this is the smell of cyanide. And this break room was loaded with the stuff. The water cooler was taken to be tested. The cups, the coffee pot, the coffee creamer, everything in the fridge, everything. Everything they suspected could have been contaminated was taken to be tested and the results were horrifying. The findings were that there was trace amounts of cyanide found in coffee cups. There was a 
huge dose found in the coffee pot, uh, which had enough cyanide to kill probably everybody in that office alone. But the mother load came from the water cooler that Julie had taken one sip from. 32 grams of the lethal poison was found to be in the water cooler, which meant that water could have killed 150 people. And it was in an office where just four people worked. If anyone would have made a pot of coffee or used the coffee cups or if more people would have drank the water, I mean, that would have been enough to kill everyone. Whoever did this was was either trying to do that, to kill everybody in this office, or was trying to kill one person and didn't care who else died along with them. My first thought was it was a disgruntled employee or perhaps uh, somebody who didn't like this insurance company or maybe just a psychotic water delivery person who was just, you know, really sick. Um, But those guesses, they're not correct. Just a few days after Julie was found in that bathroom stall unconscious, she was taken off life support and died. This was now a full-blown murder investigation. Investigators want to talk to all the employees, which was not going to take long, considering they only had three people to interview, but that also meant they got a lead straight away. Guess who worked with Julie? Diane Harry did. That's right, Lewis Harry's wife. The woman who had been sent threatening letters by Lewis Harry's girlfriend's ex-boyfriend, Roy. That is a lot to take in, but I'm going to break it all down just in case you lost track of who's who. And also this is confusing because Lewis had told Sharon, his girlfriend, that he was divorcing his wife, Diane. Well, Lewis was not divorcing his wife and he denies the affair he was having with Sharon. Okay, he denies it to the police. I'm sure he denied it to Diane. He tells police that him and Sharon were just friends. It was somebody who he had befriended. When Diane is talking to police, she says, well, I don't know anyone who would want to harm Julie, but, but I certainly know someone who wants to harm me. And police are like, well, who's that? Who are you talking about? And I'm not sure if she said this because she knew about the letters Roy had sent or if it's because things in her home were seeming suspicious to her upon reflection. But she tells police that some things at her house have been weird, I guess. You know, she doesn't describe it as weird. She describes it however she described it. I'm I'm, uh, paraphrasing here. But she tells police there's been some things at her house that haven't been right. And police want to know what she means by that. And she tells them, well, a few days ago, I had a drink of whiskey, you know, out of her whiskey bottle. And it wasn't, it it wasn't right. It tasted horrible and it, it made her feel sick. She also said that the coffee she made herself at home Um, so she makes a coffee at home. She pours some milk in and the milk curdled. It went bad right away. And she knew it wasn't the milk because the milk wasn't expired. The milk wasn't bad. 
Um, and she had made this coffee using water that she boiled in her kettle. She didn't drink it. She threw it out. She's like, something's not right with this. It is a good thing that she puts milk in her coffee because we're going to see that if she would have drank that, it would have been, it would have been really, really bad. There would have been a bad outcome there. So this news that Diane is telling police this raises red flags for investigators so they gather some things from her home to be tested such as the whiskey bottle and the kettle as those are the things she's identifying that you know something might be amiss with those when those things are tested in a lab it is discovered that cyanide is present again I'm not sure if Lewis had shown the um threatening letters Roy had sent to his wife Diane as you know then she would have known that he was having an affair but Lewis shows police these letters and this is looking like Roy may have broke into their home to make good on the threats in these letters as revenge for Lewis dating his ex-girlfriend who he was very clearly obsessed with and possessive over and and stalking and violent towards and one of these letters that Roy allegedly sent um, to Lewis and to Lewis's wife said something about taking his wife away from him so he would know how it felt, which is going to sound like a big time threat, especially seeing it in this light now. So it would also make police think about the fact that he would have also had to break into the office building as well. So they're thinking Roy broke into their home, put this cyanide in, um, put this cyanide in Diane's things. When that wasn't working, he broke into the office building. This is what police are thinking is, is possibly what happened. So now police, they want to talk to Roy and Roy said that he didn't do anything. He said he didn't send any letters and that was that. For some reason, Roy comes back the next day and he tells police, okay, okay, I, I did. I did send some letters and police must have showed him the letters because he says, wait, wait a minute here. I only sent four letters. And I hand wrote those letters, but police, they had seven letters allegedly sent by Roy to the Harry's home. Four of them were handwritten. Those are the ones he's saying, yeah, absolutely. I did those. Not my finest moment, but I did them. But three of them were typed. The three typed ones had the threats against Diane Harry in them, but the handwritten ones were towards Lewis and it's these typed ones again it's these typed ones that Roy is like I didn't do those I didn't type those ones Um, I hand wrote my threatening letters so what's going on here what's what's happening here and police hear this and they think well actually yeah this doesn't track because why would Roy change up his method of writing why would he suddenly go from handwriting these letters to typing these letters. It, it, it really doesn't make sense. Investigators take a look at the envelopes the typed letters were sent in and they notice there's a small defect in one of these envelopes that occurred during manufacturing. Something happened with the machine, something misaligned. It's a small detail, but it yields big results. 
Apparently this defect happens when alignment is off. Uh, so the flaps, they don't line up exactly. Um, it's not a huge problem as the envelopes still function as they should, but you know, there is that small misalignment um, where the corners meet. And this is what they saw in one of these envelopes. It's actually not very common. So their thinking was that maybe whoever has these envelopes that have these little imperfections, uh, they would have more of the same envelopes with the same defect in the batch. And then from there, they could pinpoint who sent it. I'd imagine investigators were looking at anyone close to Diane Harry after finding the cyanide in her home and in her beverages. And this led police to getting a search warrant for her husband's office. When Lewis Harry's college office is searched, what do you think they find? Mm -hmm. Well, they find a gold mine of evidence. They find the envelopes in a box and some of them have that same defect. One investigator said the chances are one in a million. So I mean, that's looking like Harry typed and sent those threatening letters to himself and his wife pretending to be Roy. It doesn't end there though. A shelf was taken from his office to be tested in a lab and cyanide was found to be present on that shelf. Not only do they find trace amounts, but they find a receipt for, yep, you guessed it, cyanide. I feel like I'm saying that word a lot here. I'm sorry, but it's got to be said. Yep, they found a receipt for the murder weapon. Lewis Harry, he works in the phys ed department. So why does he have this receipt? This receipt had the chemical company's name on it, and it had a signature from the purchaser. Now, this is the 80s, remember, so whoever bought it had to do it in person. But I will jump back to this in a moment. It turns out that the signature on this receipt did not read Lewis Harry. Instead, it read Charles Hawley. Investigators decided to do a handwriting analysis against Lewis Harry's known signature and this Charlie Hawley person. And the conclusion was that Lewis Harry signed this fake name. Lewis Harry was Charles Hawley. Since whoever bought it did it in person and put it under the school's account, that's right, the college's account, they could talk to the worker at the chemical place, the place that su supplies these, these chemicals. And apparently this fake Charles Hawley person bought this cyanide for the chemistry department as they claimed it was needed for educational purposes. When the worker at the chemical store was shown a photo lineup and asked, hey, is any of these people the person who, who bought the cyanide? She pointed right at Lewis Harry and she said he did. That's the guy that bought the cyanide. Yep. This is one twisted plot, but we're not done talking about the evidence yet. Whoever poisoned the water cooler and coffee pot at the insurance office had to have gone there and physically did it. But when would Lewis Harry have done this and how? Since the building is key card entry, that means whenever someone enters with that key card, it is documented electronically. And not only that, but it is also documented whose key card opened the door. So they can tell exactly 
what time, who did it, whose key card was used. It's all electronically recorded. Investigators discovered that on the Saturday, just two days before Julie drank the poison water on that Monday, Diane Harry's key card was used at 10.18 a.m. to get into the insurance office building. Diane is confronted with this information and she has no clue how this can be. She certainly did not go to the office Saturday morning at 10, 18 a.m. She did not use her card. She did not go into that office. So investigators start asking around and luck be our lady because a maintenance guy says, oh yeah, I was let into the building Saturday morning around 10, 18 a.m. by a man who had a key card. How they found this maintenance guy, I will never know. I think it was a pretty small building complex and word was probably going around. So it, maybe it wasn't that hard, but they found this guy and he helped to put all the pieces together. He remembered that the guy who let him in uh, wasn't very nice. He wasn't very cordial. He wasn't making chit chat. Uh, He also drove a blue sports car and the maintenance guy even saw that there was a tennis racket in the car. So he probably saw it through the window and I think it was in the back window. And I could imagine the maintenance guy was admiring the blue sports car and that's why a lot of his, his details were about the car and not really about the guy. Well, the description of the car that the maintenance guy saw matches the description of Lewis Harry's vehicle. And also, Lewis was known for his love of tennis. I guess he played all the time. This eyewitness, along with all the cyanide and envelope and handwriting evidence, it was enough to arrest Lewis Harry. The trial happened pretty fast, and I'm not sure if Lewis was offered bail, but it was about a year after Julie was murdered that the trial began. So whether or not Lewis was in custody that entire time, I I can't be sure. I'd say given what his wife later found in the attic, he did not get out on bail. Otherwise, my thinking is he most likely would have discarded that, but I'm going to talk about that after the trial. Lewis was being charged with murder and also four counts of attempted murder. And the premeditation in this case, it is just, boy, it is above and beyond, you could say. The trial went a little something like this. The prosecution lays it out for the jury and says Lewis Harry wanted to murder his wife by using cyanide. He wanted to poison her. He tried at their home when he put it in her whiskey and in the tea kettle, but she noticed something was off and she didn't fall for the trap. Okay, and this was proven. After his failed attempt at poisoning his wife at home, he then stole her key card and gained access to where she worked on a Saturday when nobody was there except for this maintenance guy who saw Lewis because he let him into the building, eyewitness. Lewis went into the office where his wife and her colleagues worked, um, but nobody was there, and he put pure cyanide in the water cooler, which was enough to murder 150 people. He also put cyanide in the coffee pot, just to be sure. 
His wife, who was the intended victim, did not consume the water or the coffee, and instead on that Monday morning, Julie Williams did. Julie was murdered, but the intended target was Diane. It seems like Lewis didn't care if everyone in that office died and risked the lives of total strangers just to get to his wife. There was no argument that Lewis Harry had access to the cyanide, and investigators proved that he did through finding trace amounts in his office, and the receipt was also found in his office, which they connected to him through handwriting analysis, and also the woman who sold it to him identified Lewis as the man who purchased it. Lewis tried to frame Roy by typing up those threatening letters and mailing them to him and his wife, but the defect in the envelope pointed straight at Lewis as they found a box of envelopes in his office, and some of them had the same defect. They argue that Lewis wanted to kill his wife because he was in love with Sharon and he wanted to marry her instead. Also, Lewis was found to be the beneficiary of a $75,000 life insurance policy on his wife. If his wife died, he got a lump sum of cash and could then marry his girlfriend. Lewis took Roy's threats and built on it to try to frame him, which yes, is kind of smart, I hate to admit it, But the way he executed the framing was far from flawless and left a lot of evidence behind. During the trial, both Sharon and Diane did not believe that Lewis would do such a horrible thing. That's right, as his wife and the woman he was having an affair with sat side by side at the trial, they thought he was incapable of lies, deceit, and murder. Hmm. The jury could clearly see who the guilty party was, and 32-year-old Lewis Harry was found guilty of first-degree murder and attempted murder times four. He was sentenced to life in prison, and this life sentence, it meant life, and I believe it was something like 95 years to like 100 years in prison. I did see someone commented under something I was reading, an article I was reading about this, that Lewis Harry had died and that comment was made about two years ago I did look for his obituary and I couldn't locate one that I was for sure was his I mean I did find some Lewis Harry's from Arizona I did find those obituaries but I couldn't find one that for sure uh said that it was this Lewis Harry so he he may or may not be dead After the trial, his wife, Diane, this is where we get to what was in the attic. So after the trial, his wife, Diane, was like, oh, I can't believe my husband is in jail. He didn't do this. He's innocent. And he pled his innocence the whole time as well. So she goes home, and this was sometime after the trial, and she goes up in the attic, and she found... What, 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 what do you think she found hidden up in the attic? If you said cyanide, you are... 100% correct and this is what made her believe that her husband actually was guilty so she does believe it why police didn't find that I will never know you would have thought his home would have been searched really well like his office was and I mean it's it's not like they they didn't collect evidence from his house they got that whiskey bottle and the tea kettle and I guess they just didn't search the whole home Otherwise, they would have found that cyanide in the attic, and that would have definitely 
made it into court. I mean, that would have made the case even stronger. As for Sharon, she came to the realization years later. So both women eventually knew that Lewis was in fact a murderer and he did do this horrible thing. I mean, this case, it is just, it is just something evil. There is just something about poisoning cases that are just, I don't know. They're just like a new level of evil. I, I think it has something to do with poison being in inconspicuous everyday things that seem really harmless and it just sits there and it just waits. I don't know what it is about these cases. They just, they're so haunting. Julie Williams died just for going to work and drinking some water. I doubt she even knew who Lewis Harry was. Just so sad. And there are just, there's just so many levels to this case. So many levels. You have Roy, who was stalking Sharon and 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 stalking Lewis, and he was abusive towards Sharon, and he wasn't even the worst one in this case. That's another thing that's just chilling. Well, that concludes this week's episode. If you would like to stay up to date with what's happening on the podcast, please consider following Hell No, a true crime podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Hell No underscore a true crime podcast. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple podcast, feel free to give a five star rating. Thanks for listening and see you next week.